wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say I'm loud, say I'm clear for the whole round world to hear. So, hey everybody, thank you, Nina, as always. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. Your national movement building show. Wake up and smell the revolution. Happy Friday morning. Thanks to be in studio with Channing Martinez, co co everything <laughs> and producer. And we're happy to have Jeff Cohn, uh, founder of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, FAIR, and along with Norman Solomon, co chair of Roots Action, as in rootsaction.org. Hey, Jeff. Great to be here. Yeah, and Ithaca College and Cornell, we, we were up and probably were up there together or something. Yep, yep. I, I mean, I was at Ithaca College for 10 years studying and teaching independent media, non-corporate media. Right. And it was a thrill to try to steer journalism students away from NBC News and the New York Times to CommonDreams.org and Democracy Now!, And some of my students have jobs in independent media because we had this center at Ithaca College. It's great. I mean, training organizers, and of course, we also have a dear mutual friend, Danny Schechter, yeah. with whom I miss always, and he was my first mentor at, at Cornell University when and, I was a freshman. And he was a mentor to FAIR. Right. When we started FAIR in 1986 in New York City, Danny actually had a mainstream media job. I know job, he did, I know. And he was one of the few in the mainstream media that helped FAIR get started and, and launch and spread the word about us. So I thought, Jeff, you and I could do like three shows of reminiscence and who do we know and everything. Seriously, <laughs> and movement veterans are very important. So let's move to the present because... I think we all know that we're facing a terrible dilemma that you never think of an election as a, it's a dilemma, it's a contradiction but it's still an opportunity and there's choices to be made so last night as you know everybody we had the debate between Akuna Uka and myself and her position is why the movement should support Cornel West we need a radical voice to support the people of Palestine and the black movement And mine was why the movement should support genocide Joe Biden to deal with a very strategic choice in a very unbearable situation. So organizing is about choices. It's not about moralizing. It's not, we're in a terrible dilemma about there is a man running who says, Donald Trump, if I'm elected, there will be no more elections. I plan to, overthrow, I almost overthrew the government last time. Let me warn you, or let me promise you, that if I'm elected, I plan to establish myself as a fascist monarch. So I get the seriousness, folks. Jeff, uh, you just did a uh, videocast, and there are two parts that we're going to talk about the support of the squad. But you raised some very important questions about the disaffection of organizers, not just voters. So first of all, all the, all the environmental well, kids who killed themselves, you know, to thought Biden was going to do something, and he double-crossed them. Then you have uh, Arab, Muslim, and Palestinian human rights organizers. 
You also have black disaffections, Latino disaffection, women disaffection. And what we've been saying is most likely they will not, of course, vote for Trump. They just will not vote. So how do you deal with the uh, contradiction that I'm sure you and I could write 17 articles criticizing Biden, but what's the plan? I've written, I've written 17 articles. I know you have. I know you That's uh, right. <laughs> yeah. So I think you hit it on the nail, that we make strategic choices. If you're into radical change, it's about making strategic choices. I'm not one who believes what you do on election day is like an act of conscience. Right. Um, I don't give it that much credit because the political system is so rigged in favor of the rich and against working people. So uh, to me, uh, strategic choice is, um, and your act of conscience is how do you spend your life? What do you do every day? Uh, How are you building the movement? How are you helping poor and working class people? That's your act of conscience. But when you're in the privacy of the booth, whether you pull it for Biden or, or you stay home or you only vote for Congress but don't vote for president, to me that's just not as important. And um, we have the ability in 38, 40 states where the Democrats or the Republicans are going to win the presidency, and we will know that from polling by 8, 10, 12, 20 points right. in those states— I encourage people to cast a protest vote. Uh, if Cornell West is on the ballot, he's, he would be my choice. I don't know if he'll be on the New York ballot, which is where I vote. If you're in the 10 or 12 swing states, battleground states, that's Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, um, and several uh, Georgia, um, Virginia may even be a battleground now. Is Indiana or Illinois? No, no. Indiana is not, but um, Illinois is not. Okay. But, uh, I mean, every four years we notify people, here are your battleground That's states. Good, good. And we're going to have to do that, as you say, because we're facing such an awful choice. And I grew up in Michigan uh, with the big Arab-American population. Right. Also, a lot of the Jewish activists in Michigan are pro-Palestinian. There's a big JVP. Rashida Tlaib is the congresswoman there. And many of them who can't stand Biden, who are appalled by his Israel-Palestine policy, are going to end up voting for Biden to try to keep the neo-fascist out of power. As you say, you know, for upper-middle-class people, Trump's winning may not be as impactful because they will get abortions, or the women in their lives will get abortions. The people that are going to be pulverized if Trump gets a second term, and as you pointed out, he's vowing revenge, it's going to be immigrants, it's going to be poor people, it's going to be people of color, it's going to be drill baby drill, it's going to be uh, uh, Muslims, Um, We know who his enemy list is, and it starts at the bottom. So I do think it's a crucial election. Um, Hold it there for a minute. Yes. That's good. So let me ask you this. Um, I want to talk about Cornell for a minute and come back, okay? I'm of a similar point of view. I think it's very important that Cornell West run, so I want to ask you a question about the viability simply of him getting on the ballot campaign. 
because we also have the possibility of Joe Manchin running and Bobby Kennedy running. And that's going to be a mess, you know. So I think it's, it's, some people say to Cornell, don't run, which I think is ridiculous, since everybody else has the right to run. You know, I think we know who he is. He's an independent intellectual. He's not an organizer. He's not a movement person. But he can certainly make some really important points, especially on Palestine, and force it into the election, which is very important. I want to come back to some tactical questions, but tell our listeners, because I don't know, what is the status of Cornell West's capacity to get on the ballot? And another question somebody raised is, does he even have a viable campaign plan? Um, I don't think he's going to be on many ballots. Really? Um, I haven't seen much of a plan. Remember, he started with the People's Party. Right. That was a sort of scandal. He went to the Green Party, and then he left the Green Party. It's been sort of a mess. Yeah. Uh, I love Cornell West. He's one of the endorsers of RootsAction.org. I wish he had run as a Democrat. Uh, Norman Solomon, the the national director of RootsAction, sent him an email. I sent him an email. Um, A lot of people talked to him and wanted him to run inside the Democratic Party. We did not know that there would be this horrific genocide, this mass murder in Gaza, we knew that he was going to raise the Palestinian issue, which is why we wanted him in the Democratic Party. I think back on it, and it's such a missed opportunity that if he had been running in the Democratic Party, and then the Israelis are unmasked for what they're capable of in disregarding Palestinian life, he would have been, you know, all these young people that are disaffected, all these racial justice activists that are disaffected from Biden, thankfully, they would have had a place to go to punish Biden and punish him now right. and punish him in New Hampshire and punish him in South Carolina. As it is, you had, I don't know if it was 1% of the people in New Hampshire, mostly young people who were writing in ceasefire now. And... Uh, you know, they voted for ceasefire right. in their ballot. Well, let's but it would have been so good if Cornell West had been in the Democratic Party primaries, and it would have been a rallying cry, and I think it's a missed opportunity. I do, too, because I worked for Jesse Jackson in 84 and 88, and I saw an amazing insurgency. He almost won. I, I was funny because I was talking to people when Jesse ran... They said, well, I don't believe in a protest vote. I'm going to work for Gary Hart. I'm going to work with right. whoever the hell it was. And I laughed at him. I said, yeah, well, how, how'd you do? You know? <laughs> how'd that work <laughs> how'd out? How'd that work out for yeah. you? Because yeah, Jesse Jackson did yeah. great. He came in second, and, and yeah. he won major states. And I was on his campaign team in 84 and 88. So, yes, but the difference for our listeners, you're on Voices from the Front Lines, you're a national movement building show, you're on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM all over somewhere, and kpfk.org all over the rest. So I'm in studio again with Channing Martinez and with Jeff Cohen. The other thing our listeners need to know is that I've been critical of Cornell. I mean, it's not the main point, but because I think he's more individualistic than an organizer. Jesse Jackson... Brandon in 84, and he did great. 
You know what he did between 84 and 88? He marched on every picket line. He came to GM Van Nuys. We had a campaign. And uh, he drew media. He, we had an enormous event at GM Van Nuys at the UAW Hall. And he still did a great line where he said uh, something like, you know, we're, we're fighting for jobs here, not like the Contras who are killing people in, in El Salvador. He made it, he, he was not just pandering to working class people. So Jesse was phenomenal. And I just want, for the record, folks, to if you, if you haven't been there, you got to go back and study this because this was the most effective insurgency I've ever been. And, and if I can pipe please, in. Please, please, pipe in. Yeah, it was, I was very active in 88 because right. we started FAIR and so much of the problem that Jesse encountered right. was the mass media. Right. It was utterly racist. We, we demanded meeting and got it with the publisher of the New York Times after we'd sent them almost an indictment mm-hmm. of their racist coverage of uh, Jesse Jackson. But yeah, before intersectionality was talked about a lot, he was practicing it. He was the first presidential candidate to speak for the Palestinians. He was the first presidential candidate that was talking about gay rights all the time. And obviously he had the pro-labor, pro-working class. uh, and, And the Rainbow Coalition which I had first heard from Fred Hampton. Exactly. Um, he gave real meaning to Rainbow Coalition. Uh, you know, everyone works for everyone else's struggle. Right. We all support each other's struggles. It was, I'm more familiar with 88 than 84, but I voted for him every time I had a chance. But in 88, it was really electric. And because he was an African American and he had that base already, being with his long years with the civil rights movement, he was able to have African Americans at the core, and then all the other groups joined. It was truly amazing. And as you say, Cornell West doesn't have that background that Jesse had with SCLC and yes, Operation sir. Push, but uh, Cornell could have accomplished something similar. And I, I'm going to get off of that. Yeah, so uh, that's quit beating important. that horse. Well, the, what's important is we made an argument last night about Cornell, and I don't think we knew fully <laughs> how few ballots he's going to be on. But uh, moving right along, so let I want to stay on something. Let's talk about the Bobby Kennedy candidacy because he does have a funded independent program, and let's talk about Joe Manchin for a minute. So let's talk about Bobby yeah. Kennedy. Jr. I, I, my guess is that Manchin's not going to run, but yeah. Bobby Kennedy. Junior um, will be on a bunch of ballots. He'll be on far more than Cornell West. Uh, we thought he might be talking about a merger with the Libertarians, which would have put him on almost all the ballots. That didn't happen. Uh, I believe Bobby Kennedy Jr. takes as many votes or more from Trump than from Biden. I do too. I, uh, his, his candidacy does not worry me. Uh, in in terms of def- keeping the neo fascist from taking power in January 2025, but uh, if there are left wing candidates in on the ballot in Wisconsin or Michigan, or, uh, Georgia could make a difference and help Trump beat Biden. Um, but uh, I mean, Joe Manchin, I don't think he's running. I don't think they, I don't think they have a reason to run. It's sort of hard to say Biden's too left-wing at this point, but that was initially what what sort of formed their problem solvers, you know, middle. Uh, so 
but again, I understand that young people are furious uh, with Biden. I am too. And um, when I watch the mainstream media pundits sort of lamenting that young people are now so disaffected and they say things like, well, young people, they view the Palestinian-Israeli conflict through a racial justice lens, <laughs> you know, right, as if right. that's a bad know, thing. Yeah. Or they see the Palestinian struggle as an extension of the racial justice movement that they were in heavily with the, after the George Floyd killing. Of course it's true. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But in the mainstream media, this tisk tisk that, that young people see this as a racial justice matter when thousands and thousands of Palestinians are being killed and all of the Western governments are on the side of the slaughter. And it's only in the global South governments, and thank God for the post-apartheid South African government bringing charges to the International Court of Justice. But, yeah, I mean, young people are going to, many of them are going to stay home. They're not going to vote for president. That's going to be the case in the swing states. I will try to talk them out of it. I understand where they're coming from, but uh, I don't know. There's only so much we can do to prevent Trump from taking power when Biden is such a weak candidate and getting weaker and getting worse. Well, the voice you're hearing is movement veteran Jeff Cohen. The other voice you're hearing is Eric Mann, also movement veteran. And, you know, I think it is important. We haven't talked very much on voices about the elections, our first effort. Uh, I wanted to address something that uh, is an important issue, which is there's some people that are saying, you know, after the election, we should... No, I said no. During the election, we need to have demonstrations on Palestine. We need to have demonstrations on black rights. We need to have demonstrations, as you said, about abortion rights. We cannot allow the Democratic Party, even if certain people think we should vote for them, to allow uh, a further move to the right, because... One of the things that I was saying to our comrades last night is this election is going to turn, as it always does, on three counties and 12 states, and they're almost all white, and that's the problem, that they have made certain choices to say, okay, we may have some disaffection in the black community, but in the end, 90% of the black community is going to vote. Uh, I wanted to make another point here, that what people don't realize is Biden's not going to be the main candidate. Michelle Obama and Barack Obama are going to be the main candidates. They're going to push him out of the way and say, go, go sit down and don't come out, please. And Barack is going to run. And that will mobilize people because he's, I like him. I like him. I have plenty of issues with him, but he was a much more humane critic of the war. He got in trouble for saying... You have to, you know, you had to say, of course, Israel's right to exist. But then he said, you must address Palestinian humanity. And he got heat for that. So where am I going with this? Just for a minute, let me grab my own thoughts. One, I think that the Obamas are going to be the key to the election. How's that? I think they are the attractive candidates. Every time Michelle can be a, whatever they call him, you know, a stand-in for Biden, they're going to... Surrogate. Surrogate, thank you. 
The other thing I think is very important is for movement people to not say, well, I'm not going to vote for Biden, I'm going to demonstrate. You, you should be doing both. Or you should vote, let's, let's say that, because you're on KPFK. And I'm not advocating what you do. But if you work for Biden, seriously, if you work for Biden, Jewish Voice for Peace, Palestinian Liberation Groups, Black Lives Matter, Labor Community Strategy Center, this is more the time to be bringing our issues into the movement because let him be always, he has a political dilemma. So what do you think of that, Jeff? Definitely. You keep, look, when we did the Vote Trump Out campaign in 2020, Roots Action sent resources, this is during COVID, to Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin. All three Biden narrowly defeated Trump. Right, very narrow. Our, our, uh, our campaign was called Vote Trump Out, then challenge Biden. You know, an argument, who would you rather have in the White House to be polarizing with? Who would you rather have in the White House to be organizing against? And uh, that's sort of the issue. You raised a great point um, that I want to bring up 2016. It's, I'm a huge critic of Obama's politics, although obviously he was a different personality. Um, and so am I. Yeah, no, I know. You said you disagree with him on issue, many, many, many issues. Um, in 2008, capitalism had collapsed. Right. He he won Indiana. Unheard of for a Democrat. He won um, North Carolina. He had a mandate for cha- hope and change. Absolutely. And I think he blew it. But by 2016, you've got this phony populist trying to whip up white working class anger uh, over everything, uh, but pointed it at people of color, right. directing it uh, away from the rich to people of color and immigrants. Um, and Chuck Schumer, then the leading Democrat in the Senate, he made a comment that to me was so telling of the just the uh, utter uh, dissolving of the Democratic Party and any pretense that they support the working class. And certainly Jesse was trying to move the party in the totally opposite direction. But Schumer said about Pennsylvania... In July of 2016, when it was Hillary versus Trump, for every voter we lose, every working class voter we lose in in Western Pennsylvania, around Pittsburgh, we're going to pick up two moderate Republicans in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Right. It was utterly insane. Right. They lost Pennsylvania. It was sort of a guy admitting what you're not supposed to admit out right, loud, which is we've abandoned any any semblance of a pro-working class politics that could unite multiracially. And uh, we're going to pick up the white suburbanites. It was insane. It failed. Uh, Roots Action did a autopsy after that disaster. That was one of the worst days in U.S. history right. when Trump became president. And the Democratic Party refused to analyze what went wrong. Um, and we put out, you can find it online, uh, we did a post-mortem on the election. And we found that basically uh, young people either uh, did not turn out or they, in bigger numbers, voted third party, even in swing states. 
poor African-American voters, so-called occasional voters, low propensity, they did not vote. Uh, Detroit is where uh, Hillary lost to Trump, uh, you know, in the state of Michigan. Detroit was lousy turnout. Philadelphia was lousy turnout. They lost Pennsylvania. Milwaukee was lousy turnout. If you're a Democrat and you whip up enthusiasm, as they sometimes do, on the basis of how they're going to deliver for working-class people, and then you don't deliver, and you're in power for eight years, it's going to lead to the disaffection of your own base, and it's going to allow a phony populist like Trump to start rabble-rising among white working-class, white poor, uh, that uh, you know the problem isn't the system, it's these people that are darker skin than you. And it worked. Um, so... You know, we did a good post-mortem. We understood what went wrong. And frankly, I fear we're going to uh, be there in 2024. The same lack of turnout among young people and people of color, and then Trump working his, his con artistry, uh, his phony populism. Well, just to clarify, but still my uh, strange appreciations of the Obamas is uh, not strange. I mean, I was appalled in uh, 2008. The entire capitalist system collapsed, as you know. And Obama, he didn't blow it. He consciously chose to allow like a million black people losing their homes at that time. Uh, he was a willful supporter of uh, his whole economic team was... Uh, Wall Street. It was Goldman Sachs. Yeah. So I have no illusions about the Obamas. In fact, every time... I would get mad. I would tell my wife, Leanne, I'm not voting for him. She says, yes, you are. You know, come on. Don't, you know, come That's on. Funny. I'm, I'm going to withhold my vote from the Obamas. Yeah. But you don't. What I'm getting to, though, is if we think that Donald Trump is by far the greatest danger in terms of hopefulness, the people that can turn out who Joe Biden can't, and that's the thing I want to keep and come back to, it's a hope, and I bet you it is the Democratic Party's strategy, is what I'm saying, is Obama is going to campaign everywhere. And therefore, in some way, you're voting for Barack and you're voting for uh, Michelle, and you're not having to vote for Biden in a certain way. And I think, I think I'm going to be right. And there is, in fact, a hopeful possibility because the Biden himself, when you do a postmortem, you can have Hillary in one uh, autopsy, and then you have Biden in another one. And we don't need to do a post-mortem. We know what they look like. But my greatest hope, because this is serious, folks, what we're saying is you can have a lot of opinions, but as I say, you may be having one in a concentration camp. So don't, yeah. be, don't be so clever. you know. But t t deal with yeah, what I, I was mean, saying let me about... Respond. Yeah, please. Yeah, I agree with so much of what you just said. I think they're going to get uh, young women multiracial, right. talking on the abortion issue everywhere they can. That's right. Celebrities. Yeah. Um, that's going to be a big uh, part of their campaign because the Republican Party are denialists on everything. No kidding. They're denialists on climate change, on gun violence, on, on abortion rights. You know what's the most appalling? They're against Taylor, Taylor Swift, Swift and uh, Kelsey. Kelsey. I know those names are good. So the point is they have now opposed Taylor Swift and Jason Kelsey on the grounds of, I forgot what the issue is.
But that's going to be, they may lose the election on that. There's no doubt. It's a crazy <laughs> Republican crazy. Party. Yeah. And because uh, they're for, they're for vaccinations or something. No, well, he is. Right. Yeah, he did a commercial. But also Taylor Swift um, has registered, has gotten so many young people to register. See, that's, that's the what answer. she does. Yeah, that's the answer. Is, and uh, we're all going to become surrogates. Yeah. And tell Joe, just just Joe, you, you're really so good. Why don't you rest? Yeah. So when you get to be president again, Joe, we don't want to. <laughs> You know, just take a take a dive for a while. Yeah, well, and I think this is what we're saying is that one of the arguments I made, Jim, back to you is that let's segue to the squad because people have to understand AOC is in the Democratic Party, Yohan Omar is in the Democratic Party, and they're under phenomenal attack by the Democratic Party as well. How do you play that? Yeah, how's that yeah. going to play out in the election? That's so crucial. I mean. To finish the pre- yes, previous yes. point, though, um, yeah, we need the right to organize. Right. Uh, any listener to your show knows that. You can't do the com- community labor, so you can't organize for the bus riders union. We need the rights to organize. Without the right to organize, and that's one thing we get if when the Democrats, as awful as they can be, as corporatist as they can be, as militarist as they can be, they're not out to stop our right to organize, uh, whereas Trump would. He doesn't believe in small-D democratic norms. In terms of the squad, the three most—the squad has been—is a key to the left. I agree. And they're all multiracial, largely women, um, running openly as socialists or pro-socialists. It's unheard of. When, When I have arguments with People that think it's valuable to run and the third uh, left wing third party and get one percent of the vote. I think the squad has shown a different approach that you can run in Democratic primaries in key places and defeat the corporate uh, Democrats. Uh, And no one did it better than AOC. She took out the guy who was going to be the Speaker of the House after Pelosi. Um, And so. Uh, you've got Rashida Tlaib, the first Palestinian American in Congress from Detroit. She's looking solid. AOC's looking solid. Ilhan Omar in Minnesota is looking solid. Really? Oh yeah. But the the APAC is spending oh, I know, I know. millions. Tell us what APAC yeah. is. Yeah, APAC is the American Israel P- Public yeah. Action political Committee. Action. Yeah, and they yeah Political Action Committee. And they are the big. They are the center of the Israel lobby. The right. Israel can do no wrong lobby. The Israel right or wrong lobby, and unlike other lobbies, the reason APEC is so powerful is other lobbies often just have one party sewn up. Right. The NRA controls the Republican Party, not the Democrats. APEC controls the Republican Party. And most of the Democratic that's Party, right, that's right. and the squad has been standing up for Amazing. ceasefire. So the three that are most vulnerable are Jamal Bowman, huh. in uh, the educator. He was a middle school principal from Bronx and Westchester. Uh, so he's in the Westchester area. Yeah, and okay. Bronx. Right. Uh, and again, there may be that district. New York state districts may go, may undergo some changes at the last minute. Uh, Corey Bush in St. Louis, they're really targeting her. And Summer Lee, the great labor, labor-oriented uh, African-American activist from Pittsburgh. 
uh, all three of them are the ones that we're going to be raising money for. And um, let's talk about chess a little bit. <clears throat> now, I understand what the Democrats are saying, and I definitely understand the real threat of Trump winning, right? I get that. Um, on the other hand, I see that Trump has tied up the Supreme Court, and he's tied up a lot of Congress. And I'm curious on what you are seeing in terms, because you just said some districts are going to be changing in New York. And I mean, I think one thing that I'm thinking about is even if the Obamas are going to talk about abortion or they're going to talk about all these issues, what we've seen in the last four years is almost, you know, any of the campaign promises that Biden has made has not, you know, gone through either because he doesn't want them to go through or because they just can't get out of the Senate, right? And so I'm trying to figure out what, where do you see the path forward? Like, do you see, even if Biden wins, do you see it as a victory and us being able to continue doing the work? Or will Trump be able to still, throughout you know, all of his political plays, still tie up things at the federal level? Oh, um, I'm not as optimistic as Eric about the Obamas and other surrogates being able to turn things around. But if they do, the best case scenario is that the Democrats uh, retake the House. And, and you mentioned New York is key to that. Uh, Republicans won four or five districts really close. Mm-hmm. And they're all, I think there's going to be a, some redistricting right in the next month or two. Um, and, it, and if they can get this, retain the Senate, which means the Democrats, they need John Tester to be reelected. They need Sherrod Brown in Ohio to be reelected. They need Ruben Gallego in Arizona mm. to defeat both uh, Kirsten uh, Sinema, who's going to run as an independent and the right wing Republican. Um, if they win those three states, they they keep the Senate. So, again, if Biden somehow sneaks in and gets through and the Democrats have a narrow victory in the Senate, I think it, it really empowers progressive forces to make demands and make demands that stick. Um, the worst case scenario is, as you say, Trump's already got the Supreme Court, is that... Uh, you know, they get uh, the Republicans have the House, the Senate, and the Supreme Court, and the White House. And that is a likely, uh, that is also a likelihood. Let me clarify. I'm just grasping at straws here, folks. I mean, I'm, I'm saying, uh, I'm saying that their best, I'm not saying the Obamas can save it. I'm saying they're the best hope. I really do believe that. I saw it the last month of the year of the last election. Barack Obama was in Pennsylvania. He was in Philly. You know, the great work was done in Philadelphia by a lot of black groups. And they pulled together one of the best genuine movement coalitions for Biden where the groups were building their own independent base. Black, Latinx, gay, uh, climate. They actually got together and built something. You know, that's very exciting. No, I think it's terrifying. Let's be very clear. Um, and I had one more thought I wanted to throw back at you. So let, let me just say that. Do you understand what I was saying? That 
I'm not predicting elections. Right. I'm saying that Biden running against Trump, I think he's going to get killed if he's the face of this. No election, doubt. Right? You're right. And, and I mean, that's why we had the at rootsaction.org, we had the Don't Run Joe yeah, campaign, that, right? which is now the stepasidejoe.org campaign. We've been trying to get him out. Why? Because the polls show that a generic Democrat does better against Trump than Trump, than Biden, almost any Democrat. Why? Because if the focus is not on Biden, but it's on the D's versus the R's, young people come out because they know they're against the R's. And so if it's more of a generalized uh, contest, but when it's focused on Biden, and Biden is so associated with the massacre in Gaza. That's right. Um, and, you know, the climate activists that worked so hard for him in 2020, they've seen a number of reversals, the drilling in Alaska, the drilling in the Gulf. A week ago, uh, Biden has a pause on liquefied natural gas exports. That's a victory for climate activists, but is it just election year? Yeah. Election year. Uh, so that that's the problem. But I, I think we've got to keep going back to our slogan in uh, in 2020, which was, you know, defeat Trump, then challenge Biden. You don't have the right to organize if Trump wins and he's got the Supreme Court and he's got a Republican Senate and House. The right to organize shrinks. The right to vote will shrink for people of color. All the vote suppression that they're doing. So, uh, yeah, we're in a tough yeah. situation. Let me say here. something about that. Yeah. So, because I think and about the voice that. you're hearing is Channing Martinez. Thank you. The <laughs> co-chair of the Labor Community Strategies and the co-chair of our radio show, the co-chair of everything we do together. Now, the, that that brings up some history. I, I, I'll admit I still have to read a little bit of history to get clarity. But when you talk about Jesse Jackson running in the Democratic Party versus Cornell West's decision to not run, one thing that I... And beginning to learn is that because Jesse Jackson ran, it further expanded voting rights in ways that made sure that right wing states don't, you know, take over their fair share. Right. And so in thinking about how voting rights um, have been really depleted, I feel like it's just when you say that, I just think about what a lost because. Cornell West says he believes in voting rights and he wants to stand up for the South and wants to stand up for black people, but yet then he chooses not to run as part of the Democratic Party to expand voting rights. Well, yeah, I'm so glad you brought up Jesse Jackson. I mean, they, the Jesse Jackson campaigns and its aftermath registered literally millions of new voters, young voters and, and voters of color. Everyone knows it. Uh, two, four years later, in 1990, 1992, when African-American candidates won, they would say, well, thank the Rainbow Coalition, thank Jesse Jackson's earlier campaign. So these things do have a tendency to build. Uh, what I think all three of us are worried about is if Trump gets in there in January 2025, that we have obstacles that we've never dreamed of trying to overcome uh, that will need to be overcome. And uh, it's going to be a dangerous a situation for anyone who believes you can use democratic rights 
to expand the power of working class people. Um, you know, to stay there, um, how are we doing on time, Martinez? 17 minutes left. Okay, cool. I mean, our listeners, we're gonna, it turns out we're going to do the whole show, except they got to sing a song somewhere in there, maybe. But what you're listening to, and what Akuna and I did last night, is this is a conversation, not a campaign speech. This is complicated stuff. So if you're listening, you know, Jeff and I particularly, I mean, Jeff knows a lot about the Democratic Party, and Jeff's not a big lover of the Democratic Party, but he understands every single edge of these complex relationships. I know not as much as you, but I pay a lot of attention to elections, the local and so forth. Uh, you know, the thing you said about democratic rights, when I was in a communist group, we had a theory about, which was different from a lot of groups. We think you fight for democratic rights. You, that's one of the biggest issues is it doesn't matter. You have to win the right to organize. You have to win voting rights, as you were saying, Channing. You can talk about socialism, communism, and overthrowing the government, but the people are fighting for democratic rights. And if you have any left uh, contempt for that, well, it's not this, it's not that, you misunderstand what people are fighting for in this country. And if you want to be an effective leftist, you have to be part of those movements. You have to be helping to lead the struggle. And I one thought I wanted to take, not today, but the next thing is that I think the movement has to start now building an anti-fascist resistance simultaneously because we're not talking about a long time. And if you say it's going to be really bad, I think we have to theorize if and when Trump comes to power, besides saying we're in big trouble, what are we going to do about it? And I don't want to have that conversation now as much as to say I think the movement has to have that as a simultaneous conversation. Because we got to start now, in, especially in black, third world communities. Uh, I, I just heard something I just said, which made sense. We have to get the white west side. We have, in other words, we have to have some serious meetings with movement people. Not about who just to vote for, but what are we going to do? If Trump owns the court, owns it funny. He owns the court, the presidency, the, the, the Senate, and the House. What are black folks going to do? What are immigrants going to do? What are women going to do? Not simply that we're screwed, but what's the resistance look like? Well, that, that, that for me, it seems in February, and we have a primary and the presidential election, it seems to me, and I'm not trying to run Cornell West's campaign at all, obviously, but it seems to me that, like, I think about Cornel West, and then I think about Stacey Abrams. And Stacey ran in the Democratic Party, and she helped to get a lot of votes, but then she didn't necessarily stand up to Biden. But it seems to me that Cornel West has that opportunity, that he can run however he wants in the primary, and then after the primary, get your butt to work and start working into the Democratic Party to get people to vote and build and help us build the movement that you're talking about, right? Because you're already in that political lining. But he's not in the primary. And the, the thing that I'm listening to, I just want to say, uh, what Jeff said that is a little discouraging to me, is I naively thought that Cornell would be on a lot of ballots. So this is very, you know, you're having a debate about what to do about Cornell West. 
you know, you may not have to have the debate because he's really not running for president in, in yeah. any viable way. Yeah. Um, I want to end with some questions like this, both to Channing and to Jeff. Um, tell us more about your work because we can't, you know, it's, we got to have this conversation. But tell us sure. a little bit more about FAIR. Tell us a little bit more about Roots Action because at the end of the day, that's what we got. Organizations. Right. Um, Jenny, I'll ask you about the strategy. Yeah, I mean, FAIR was set up uh, in 1986. It was when mainstream media were uh, puffing up Ronald Reagan. Um, uh, the terror wars were going on, the racist coverage of Jesse Jackson. So we, we wanted a group that would turn media criticism and media grumbling into action. You know, everyone would complain about the media. They don't cover our our community. They don't cover our movement. They don't cover our organization. And we said, instead of grumbling to each other, let's organize. Let's have protests outside of media outlets. You know, I started when I started FAIR, I moved to New York, but I had been in L.A. for 12 years. And I asked for a show of hands. How many people have ever protested outside of Parker Center, the police headquarters? All the hands would go up. How many have ever protested a federal building? All the hands would go up. How many have protested outside of a co- corporate headquarters over labor or consumer or environment? All the hands. How many have ever protested outside of a news outlet? No, I think that's great. Yeah, it was exactly. very few back then. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that was what FAIR tried to change. You know, to politicize the issue of media bias and media exclusion and who owns the media. Um, and you know, I I haven't. I'm just an outside advisor to Fair. Uh, you know, it's run by Jim Narikas. Janine Jackson hosts the radio show every week called Counterspin. Uh, Julie Holar, Olivia Reggio. It's a hardcore group with a lot of stringers, a lot of activists that contribute articles. And when the New York Times did not write one word about the mass march in Washington for Gaza. Unbelievable. Yeah, and it was covered all over the world, um, but not in the New York Times. FAIR put out an action alert within a few days, uh, and they give the email here, sign here, you know, and it'll all go to the New York Times. Here's how to complain. So we've tried to make that a political issue, that media bias, media censorship, media exclusion is political. It's not something you grumble to your husband or wife or kids. It's something you take action. In terms of rootsaction.org, we started that, Norman Solomon and I, in 2011. And it was basically because of our concern about Obama and the corporate Democrats. Um, We had seen this group called Move On that was against the invasion of Iraq, which the Democratic leadership had conspired, had, you know, had facilitated with President Bush. It was Bush-Cheney, but all the Democratic leaders, including Joe Biden, John Kerry, John Edwards, Hillary Clinton, uh, Harry Reid, they all voted for it. And here was Move On using this new tool called the Internet and email organizing, online organizing. And we were so impressed. And then by 2007, Nancy Pelosi becomes the speaker. 2009, Obama becomes the president. And all of a sudden, Move On, which had built itself as an anti-war group, would never mention the word war. 
when Obama was the president. They had they used to stand up for civil liberties and for whistleblowers and those who were questioning the invasion of Iraq and the occupation. But then when Pelosi becomes the speaker and Obama, those issues went away. So we looked at what move on did. And in 2011, frustrated by we we got tired of writing articles critical of move on. We said, let's build our own organization. So So we have over a million people on our email list. Wow. Uh, rootsaction.org. Anyone, all we, not, we need is your email address and your zip code. I'm in. We do, yeah, we do the rest. We will make sure it's easy for you to email your Congress member. Or we've done a lot of local stuff. We, we just did a, a big blast nationally where we were getting people to contact their city council and their county council. Uh, and their county board of supervisors, and we made it easy to do that so that they could uh, demand ceasefire resolutions to be sent to Biden. That's so, your last word, yeah, brother. Yeah. And that was the, the voice of a really passionate, good, really good organizer, and uh, I want you to hear the main tactic he said. We have to be organizing against the LA Times, against the New York Times, it's a really great idea. I think about it all the time, but we don't yet carry it out. Jenny Martinez, you get the last word. Um, I know it's a funny thing about of all the different revolutionary things. In three minutes, tell us about the Power Up e-bike campaign because it's opening up some new fronts. Is that okay? It is. About, it is. about who's going to get involved in a movement to defund the police and everything, but also... An actual environmental intervention in South LA. Yeah, I mean, and it's an intervention in Metro. I mean, years ago, I went to Ciclavia and watched Eric Garcetti along with Vera Lagosa, and they had this great press conference saying, oh, there's going to be these electric bikes that anyone can rent out. And here we are in 2024, about, what, 10, 15 years later, and you go on their website, and the racism of the e-bike program by Metro is blatant. I mean, you can see on the map, and it shows you where every single bike is, and then you see this gigantic, I don't know, 20, 30-mile blink spot, and that's South LA. They don't have any of those bikes in South LA because they don't want any black and Latinx people on their bikes, right? And so the great thing about this is that whereas previously bikes in South LA and bike lanes in South LA have They've raised concerns about gentrification, right? Because people see the gentrification gates and they see the stripes. And that is typically the sign in many communities that, you know, corporate and government is coming to basically kick people out of neighborhoods. And that is happening in South LA. And we're taking that and flipping it on its head because obviously I'm a black person and I've been a black kid on a bike for, I don't know how many years, 20 years, right? Um, and with the the pandemic and George Floyd and so many people and, you know, honestly, black kids being stopped and ticketed by police on bikes. Um, when one person, I can't remember his name, um, but was killed in Compton on a bike, um, the police used the excuse that he was driving in the opposite direction. And for most people who are on bikes, oftentimes we do that on a rough street because you don't want to get hit from behind. And so... Uh, This kid was doing that, and the police officer confronted him and shot him and killed him, right? Um, 
And so now we're starting this e-bike lending library, and it's called South Central Power Up, an e-bike lending library uh, for the people by the people. Um, and there's going to be about six or seven organizations that host these bikes. And the idea, including the Strategy Center, um, uh, the Strategy Center, Ride on Bike Co-op, People for Mobility Justice, uh, Esperanza Community Housing Project, South LA um, uh, Land Trust, uh, Esper- uh, it said Esperanza, and then there's one other, um, which will come to me. And the idea is that you can check out this bike uh, for at least a month and up to three months free of charge for the first six months of the program. And we tested the bikes. They are really, I mean, they're elect, they, they push you forward. And so for many South LA residents that use their bikes to go to work, because there are a lot, um, they can check that out. And there's different bikes as well that they can check out to actually even vend on the bike if they wanted to because they'll have a tub to do it. How do they reach you? Uh, you can definitely visit us uh, at the Strategy and Soul Center at 3546 West Martin King, and you can call us 213-387-2800. And obviously you can email us info at thestrategycenter.org. This program is definitely for you, and uh, we want to hear from you. Well... Rough times. I mean, I'm a very optimistic person, but the reason I wanted Channing to talk because we have to be operating at every single level right now. That's what the right wing does. Black kids on bikes, it's going to be part of the resistance. It's going to be part of the urban resistance. And we're excited because we have a new project that actually has some life to it and some love to it. And, you know, we're not just saying this and that, but... Jenny Martinez took the initiative, and we're in this e-bike program. And we hope that they're going to get involved in civil rights. We hope they're going to get involved in political action. And uh, it's been wonderful to have you both on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome back to Voices from the Frontlines. This is Channing Martinez, your co-host. Thank you for listening to Voices from the Frontlines. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And the song that you're hearing, Black People, What Y'all Gonna Do on the second day of Black History Month. And if you're part of the Strategy Center and a supporter of Voices from the Frontlines, you know that this is then the 33rd day a Black History Year 2024. They thought they gave us a month, but the Strategy Center, we take a year, every single year, to celebrate blackness and fight for black liberation. With that said, here's the answer to your question. Call 818-985-5735 right now to support KPFK, support Revolutionary Radio. If you're interested in this conversation, Feel free to visit our website, www.voicesfromthefrontlines.com, where you'll see all of the links from the show related to Support Roots Action and the Strategy Center and anything else mentioned, if you so choose. And as always, we want to hear from you. Email myself or Eric Channing or Eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com, and we will see you next week. All power to the people. The cattle screams of black unity. John Coltrane died in vain. I love Supreme.
scheme Where the higher octaves of righteousness and truth John Coltrane died in vain in love supreme Where the high registers of peace and love John Coltrane died in vain What are black people doing enough of that they shouldn't be doing? Nothing, nothing, nothing Black people, what y'all gonna do? Black people, what y'all gonna do? I see junkie giving birth to Face babies that come out nodding to the rhythm of God bless America. And these same babies grow up to be good looking corpses that haunt the streets of Harlem, raping public minded, wombless black babies who dream of becoming virgins once again in the hereafter. Stop in the name of love. Stop in the name of love. Stop mugging that old woman. She's been saving her money all year for a trip to the electric circus, but she died the very next day. Oh God! Oh God! God ain't dead. He's down on the family planning office, handing out book control pills to black women, telling them they're a gift from heaven. Look! There's old Sam the wino, searching for a last sip of ancient sweet love, and the empty wine bottles in the gutters of his soul, and the air has become polluted with white lies of love, while love is dying from overdoses of misuse, Christianity, and legitimate insane asylums, and legal torture chambers called Watts, Southside, Bed-Stuy, and Huff. Are we the black people who once loved with the slow march of time? Time was ours to hold in the soft, low-born chambers of our hearts. And was we the half-fooled mommies and daddies of a sun world would turn our strands of hair into antennas to tune in the juju madness and syncopated love rhythms of Africa. And we loved with time, and we took the time to love. And with the right time, we loved, and we loved time after time. Will we ever love again? Will we ever love again? Will we really ever love again? Or will we just sit and rot away with the brighter tomorrows in the scag-filled, rat-cluttered, pissed halls of our minds? Black people, what y'all gonna do? Black people, what y'all gonna do?